Hello everybody! So today we're gonna talk about the tyranny of the intentional object, which is the fact that <laughs> our mind does not explicitly represent what we actually want and instead weaves all sorts of stories um, that obfuscates, you know, what actually what we actually want so that we do useful work from the point of view of evolution. Um, but, but first, uh, the qualia of the day, it's uh, clean air clean air. So here I have a air quality meter. It has uh, various settings. It's uh, pretty cool. It's, um, it has like PM 2.5, uh, PM 10. It also has um, HCHO and total volatile organic uh, carbons, compounds. And uh, you know, these are really important, you guys. Like actually, like <laughs> when it comes to like interventions you could do to improve your qual the quality of your life, you know, life expectancy, long-term outcomes, cognition, and so on. Air quality is really, really key. Uh, all sorts of studies demonstrate that. You know, whenever there's a pollution day, the number of heart attacks just you know skyrocket. Whenever the you know when the when the California fires were were raging which apparently is going to happen every year from now on, potentially. Uh, but yeah, basically, if you don't have an air filter at home, a HEPA air filter, you're basically going to be uh, breathing the equivalent of something like 15 to 20 cigarettes a day by just being in your house. Uh, all of the advice that usually it's, you know, given to you about like, you know, stay indoors and like don't do exercise really doesn't cut it. It's just, you know, a drop in the water, um, you know, I've measured it, you know, without an air filter when the California fires were raging. You know, the difference was like 20% relative to what's inside to outside. With an air filter, or even better, with two air filters, you get rid of up to like 98% of PM 2.5. And, you know, studies indicate that this is not only, you know, like irritation for your heart, your cardiovascular system, you know, increasing the chances of heart attacks and cardiovascular events. Uh, immediately and then in the long term you know it accumulates and stays in your lungs and that leads to you know lung cancer and emphysema and all sorts of other complications it's not only that it's also that it affects mood it affects how you feel in the moment and it affects cognition your ability to you know reason through possibilities you know standard intelligence you know intel like battery intelligence uh, tests and so on um but, uh, you know, PM 2.5 is just scratching the surface, really, because, um, you know, formaldehyde or total, you know, volatile organic compounds, actually, that's something that uh, only recently I've been, you know, kind of really trying to improve upon because, you know, the, the PM 2.5 was already pretty good. And the CO2 as well is something that I measure. And uh, I found with uh, some experimentation, the right way of, okay, exactly how much... Uh, should I open the window? Exactly how much should I put the, the air filter on? Which room should I be in? Which door should be open? And right now it's pretty optimized and I'm really happy actually with the, the air quality in this space, which is where, where I, I work a lot of the time. And uh, that said, I, I did make a, a kind of a, um, uh, you could say a, a mess at some point, which is when I started experimenting with uh, scents and I was... Uh, kind of careless. I mean, like, first of all, I was seduced by this notion that, uh, you know, essential oils are probably pretty safe, even though, you know, if you actually look at them, you know, overwhelmingly, most essential oils contain at least trace amounts of a few, like, really toxic chemicals. <laughs> they're not, you know, just because they're natural, obviously does not mean, you know, they're particularly healthy. 
Um, some of them may have some specific health applications, but in the general case, I would expect that, you know, handling essential oils without nitrile gloves will just be bad for your health. It's going to disrupt, you know, endocrine function and it probably give you cancer in the long term, which is why, you know, nowadays I'm actually really careful and uh, I put everything in, you know, um, tight, uh, airtight uh, boxes and so on. Uh, whenever I do scent experiments, you know, I, I ventilate everything. Um, you know, I throw away all the pipettes that I use and, uh, you know, I put everything back into airtight boxes and the difference is dramatic. I mean, when I was like being pretty careless, you know, the total vol volatile organic compounds uh, reached all the way to, you know, an average of like 1.5. Uh, and it actually took me a while to notice like that was a problem. Uh, but, you know, after weeks or, I don't know, months, <laughs> I actually realized that, oh gosh, like, yeah, this is kind of irritating to my eyes and my throat. And uh, is there's something that makes me slightly more confused and just not perform quite at my peak. Uh, and as soon as I actually took seriously, you know, like putting things into airtight compartments, wearing gloves, etc., I've had like no problem. I mean, I think like just like, smelling the things um, is fine. It's fine. It's just that, you know, ideally you don't leave them laying around so that like, you know, they start like, if there's a little bit of a leak, you know, over time that builds up in your space. And I'm sure that's just not good for you. Anyway, uh, look it up. Air quality is super, super, super important. Uh, so important, in fact, that uh, I've argued that, you know, it should be actually an EA cause, an effective altruist cause. And uh, there's been some uh, really interesting articles on the EA forum basically making uh, the case for these. Like the, the lower bound for how important air quality is, is such that, yeah, I mean, just like buying a HEPA filter and being slightly mindful about this is, you know, just as good <laughs> as one of those like super expensive medical interventions you will probably do uh, in the later parts of your life. So better prevented, just have a better life and have better cognition and mood. So good air quality. Two thumbs up, good qualia. All right, so let's move on to the topic of the day, which is the tyranny of the intentional object. Now, intentional object here is uh, really referring to a philosophy term and unfortunately causes a lot of confusion. But uh, basically in philosophy, intentionality is the aboutness of thought or the aboutness of experience. Basically, um, what the experience is telling you, the, the meaning of an experience, whereas, you know, the phenomenal character of an experience is what it feels like, you know, its texture, its structure, uh, how it is composed and organized. And of course, there is like perhaps some kind of duality between them uh, in the general case. Not always. I mean, there's like a lot of like meaningless, quote unquote, experiences that could be like richly structured. And there's also like hyper meaningful experiences with relatively little structure. But, you know, in general, there's a there's a kind of like a tight coupling between them. Um, and the tyranny of the intentional object refers to the idea that we think that the purpose of life has to do with intentional objects, that what we truly want and care and to some extent enjoy what makes life worth living, if it is worth living, um, then it is because of the meaning that you get out of life. And, uh, you know, here I'm, of course, a meta contrarian or like meta meta contrarian or I don't know, something of that sort, um, because 
I mean, it's kind of obvious to say like, yeah, you know, actually, you know, life is just better when, you know, things are nice and you feel happy and things are pleasant and uh, and enjoyable. But then like people will kind of like signal their intellectual sophistication by saying, no, what I care about is not pleasure or, or avoiding pain. What I care about is meaning or something like that. And okay, fine, you know, in practice, because of the pleasure paradox, like that pursuing, you know, pleasure directly doesn't lead to long-term happiness. Like, yes, fine. <laughs> it is true that if you pursue meaning, you're probably going to have a better life. Okay, fine. <laughs> but that's like pragmatic. Like if we want to talk about the fundamentals, you know, like the, the foundational understanding of actually where value comes from, I totally do not buy that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but okay, let's uh, let's walk through why. You know, I'm just not going to state it like that and just leave you hanging. Okay, so let's start out with a, an example, a pretty classic example, actually, that I talk about in the article, The Tyranny of the Intentional Object, in fact, which is, you know, imagine there is this very cute, you know, golden retriever dog. It's a very friendly, you know, yeah, you know, your best friend, of course. And... Uh, you know, it just, it's called Sandy. And, and Sandy just happens to absolutely love sand and, and, uh, and the beach. And, uh, uh, well, sand and, you know, the beach contains so much sand of different gradients. Anyway, like, whenever, you know, Sandy goes to the beach, you know, that's mind-blowingly amazing for Sandy. You know, that's what gives meaning to the life of Sandy. It's just way better than like, you know, eating or hug. I mean, those are things good, you know, it's good, you know, friendship and, you know, exercise and so on. They, Sandy likes that, but the beach is on another level, you know? Okay, so is that fine? Are you, do you have a, you know, kind of like a, a moral concern with like Sandy just really being very into being in the beach? And, you know, it's not like an obsession or anything. It's just, it's just like a lot of enjoyment. You just like plain delight. And it doesn't cause side effects, the fact that it enjoys the beach so much. It's not, it doesn't, you know, shake when it doesn't have the beach and so on. It's just, you know, a plus. It's like kind of this cherry on top of the cake of a life that is pretty good, a dog life, a very, very wholesome dog life. Is there a problem with this? And I think like most people will say, you know, no. Actually, I would love it if my dog had like as big of a passion for something as Sandy has a, a passion for, for the beach. Okay, so, you know, that's kind of the, the matter of fact when it comes to the, ex, you know, the structure of the experiences of your dog, uh, Sandy. But let's uh, kind of like think about like what was actually going on. So now let me tell you that behind the scenes, so to speak, Sandy the dog has been, uh, since it was born, uh, it had a, a, a tiny chip implanted into its brain, uh, pleasure centers in particular, uh, in, in such a way that it could it's, those pleasure centers could be stimulated without tolerance, you know, without the development of, a, of a, you know, addiction and compulsion and, and withdrawal and so on. It's just like, you know, a particular type of, you know, electromagnetic stimulation that just doesn't generate those side effects, unlike, you know, drugs or other methods of, you know, stimulating the pleasure centers. Um, and it's just like programmed in such a way uh, that, you know, whenever Sandy's close to the beach, uh, this gets activated. And uh, of course, Sandy has absolutely no idea that this is, uh, you know, going on. It's just like, you know, it's completely and utterly clueless. You know, how could it know? Really? I mean, 
<laughs> there, there's no way for for Sandy from its point of view. From its point of view, it just feels like the beach is inherently, intrinsically wonderful and profoundly meaningful. Okay, so now given this, is that okay? You know, I've asked this question to a lot of people and I would say that maybe about like two thirds actually kind of <laughs> recoil in, in moral disgust <laughs> at the idea <laughs> that you have messed with the reward architecture of your, of your dog. But come on, you're just actually improving the life of your dog. Now, there is truth in, in okay, you're messing to some extent with, uh, you know, your dog's agency because now, you know, it kind of has to, like, self-organize around the fact that the beach is just the best part of its life. And, okay, sure, that is in some sense kind of manipulative, you know. But, and here is the very, 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 very big but that you absolutely have to consider isn't evolution already being coercive like that? And isn't evolution actually being coercive in a far more cruel and in, to some extent far more purposeless and awful way? You know, because evolution has basically wired us such that, you know, our pleasure centers and, you know, the mechanisms of valence become activated whenever we do things that, you know, improve, you know, our survival or social status or, you know, our probability of reproduction. And, that's kind of super coercive. I mean, like we're doing the the beating of our of our of our genes. We are gene servants uh, simply because you know uh, it's what kind of feels good. And of course, there's a lot of corner cases because you know if you become addicted to cocaine or whatever, like okay, sure, like that has nothing to do with you know the typical reasons why you know your nervous system would become activated in in a pleasurable way, but. Um, those are kind of like, uh, in a sense, corner cases, you know, trying to hack this uh, reward architecture, oftentimes in a, you know, pretty unwise and uh, ways that uh, backfire. But the point is that I would almost argue, you know, perhaps that like the thing that this owner did to Sandy the dog is actually way more ethical than what evolution is doing to us. Because at least there is a modicum of control. There is a some kind of, you know, adult in the room saying, all right, yeah, this kind of pleasure is wholesome and it doesn't lead to horrible, you know, suffering and consequences. Whereas evolution doesn't care, you know, like whenever our egos are threatened, uh, <laughs> evolution makes us feel that we're literally dying <laughs> whenever there's kind of very low probability that you will, you know, I don't know, like have a high social status or something of that sort it feels like you're literally dying inside. And like, isn't that awfully cruel? Like, it's actually really messed up. Like, once you recognize, like, anyway, that's, uh, that's the, the truth of it. And, and the thing is, um, <laughs> a lot of people would then kind of uh, go on to say like, oh, well, you're just being so reductionistic, you know, about what matters in life. Like, and, and you know, the typical straw man that, you might hear is like, well, you're just advocating wireheading or, you, you know, you're just advocating, um, uh, you know, all of us just being hooked up to an, a heroin drip or something like that. Like, but, 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 but life is like way more important, more rich than that, you know, like having like kids and family and like a career and, uh, and purpose and so on. Like, it, why would you just like hook yourself to a heroin drip or something like that? And of course they're right in, in a very fundamental sense. But you have to actually examine this very carefully, which is, well, the heroin drip just simply doesn't cut it. 
I mean, first of all, you develop tolerance really quickly, which is, you know, something that in principle we could eliminate with anti-tolerance drugs and just better pharmaceuticals and so on. Okay, sure, let's imagine that it doesn't have tolerance. Is it still bad? You know, most people would say, yeah, because you are not, you know, in a sense, um, uh, you know, servicing other people and meaning comes from like servicing others. Well, okay, but if you analyze what what is the reason why it's ethical to help others is ultimately because you're helping them avoid very unpleasant states of consciousness and, you know, facilitating their very hyper-meaningful, high-valent state of consciousness. And if we actually have that solved, you know, what exactly does it mean to help somebody if they're already in a peak state? Is, there, is that meaningful? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not very convinced. But, uh, you know, furthermore, um, heroin is a, is a very relatively shallow state of consciousness. And, and we'll come back to this as uh, we unravel then what meaning means. Um, but the, the thing I want to mention about heroin and Sandy the dog in this context is that uh, heroin addicts and, you know, meth addicts uh, will often, not all, I mean, it really depends on the particular nervous system you're talking about, but, you know, very likely, it's a very common thing, they will, you know, lie, cheat, you know, steal, they will do anything, they will, you know, offer themselves for for sex, you know, they'll do anything to get their fix. And I would claim, you know, we were talking, I was talking about how like, you know, feeling that your social status is threatened, it feels like you're about to die. Yeah, people will lie, steal and cheat to prevent, you know, their feeling of social status just plummeting entirely. Like, it's kind of equivalent, you know, in some sense, like, yes, we are all, we are all heroin addicts. It's just that the particular type of quote-unquote heroin that we're addicted to is, you know, endogenous opioids. <laughs> is it that different? Not necessarily. It's kind of this IV drip that, uh, you know, is modulated by, again, like, you know, survival status, reproduction, and so on. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of messed up. We are not free. Evolution did not wire us to be free. Uh, now... Uh, you know, what happens when you're like withdrawing from heroin or something like that? Well, you know, first, you know, your biorhythms will be all messed up. Uh, you know, your heart rate will be kind of like really offbeat relative to like your breathing and, and the rhythm of your stomach and other biorhythms. And a lot of like basically things become like out of tune. Uh, and that produces profound dissonance. And you can look up our symmetry theory of valence and why dissonance is, you know, ultimately the signature of low valence and so on. But uh, yeah, basically, biorhythm dysregulation is, you know, a core reason why experiences feel really bad. And uh, whether it is withdrawing from heroin or one of these other, like, evolved things, it's the same thing that happens, approximately. Uh, it's really bad. It feels awful. Of course you want to relieve that. Yes, it doesn't make sense not to. Um, and uh, on the flip side, okay, what is the, the, the positive? I mean, this is, you know, biorhythm dysregulation is the negative. What is the positive? And I would say that's some sort of a, uh, you know, consonance and in the realm of, you know, social interactions, this thing we might try to oper operationalize as interpersonal resonance. And uh, uh, there's uh, quite a bit of interesting discussion in uh, the article A Future for Neuroscience by Mike Johnson about how people may be slightly differently loaded and whether they're like metronomes or, you know, uh, they have like an in like uh, uh, entrainment mechanisms with other people. So, you know, like resonance, you know, not not every two and any two per, 
persons put together will resonate. You know, it's actually very finicky depending on, you know, personality and so on. But in the grand scheme of things, actually, there is some kind of like mathematical property that makes you enjoy being with others. And, uh, and that also is kind of similar to, you know, something like a, a, a drug might, might give. Maybe not heroin, but maybe something like MDMA. And, uh, and yeah, we kind of chase that a lot. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, so that's, uh, that was uh, Sandy the dog. Uh, the way in which this is, you know, I would summarize it in terms of the tyranny of the intentional object is that Sandy believes that what he really loves is the beach in and of itself. That, you know, the beach contains the atoms of goodness, you know, it's like holy, it's divine. But uh, in reality is that being in the beach triggers states of consciousness that are positive in valence or very positive in valence. And that is not explicitly represented in the consciousness of Sandy. And that is exactly the same with humans. That whenever meaningful states of consciousness happen, meaningful you know, operations occur, they often trigger high valence states of consciousness. But that triggering, that process does not get explicitly represented. I mean, that's one of the fascinating things, right? Like things can happen in your consciousness that do not get encoded as information in future states of consciousness that represent the operations that happened before. So it really, I mean, introspection is something that has to be learned and practiced, you know, like to kind of uh, ultimately understand that this is what's going on. It, it doesn't come naturally. We weren't wired for that, um, you know, and of course, like becoming a, a Buddhist monk and meditating for 10,000 hours is the sort of thing that, yeah, really cements that understanding. And then it's, you know, crystal clear that uh, it's not, you know, it's not that the cashier is like slow and stupid, it's that you're irritated sort of thing. Like that's, uh, that's kind of the, the insight that you will get uh, from <laughs> a lot of meditation and really genuine uh, introspection. Now, this kind of a... Um, makes us wonder then like what is meaning and why people think so much about meaning and why do they confuse it as kind of the source of goodness, uh, you know, in and of itself. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said about meaning. I mean, classical, rep, you know, Frege, for example, you know, philosophy, 20th century philosophy of language, uh, about the distinction between sense and reference that the morning star and the evening star are the same planet, they're Venus, but, uh, uh, so it's kind of confusing, right? It's like, wait, are, like, but the evening star and the, the morning star, they're different terms, but they're the same planet. So what's going on there? Uh, if like A is equal, you know, if, you know, anyway, there's some kind of weird equivalence there. And, you know, the solution, at least in that paradigm, is to break down the difference between sense and reference. So that like the sense of morning star is different than the sense of evening star because it comes with a lot of contextual imports of where you're pointing at the thing, but then the referent is the same in that physically and fundamentally from to these, these two different perspectives or contexts or states of consciousness, they are, you know, referring, ref, referencing the same ground truth, uh, the same fundamental object. Now, of course, I don't think that cuts it, you know, meaning is far more interesting than that. And uh, Mike Johnson, again, I mean, one of the things he would mention is that there's kind of this third component, which is felt sense. You know, actually meaning is a felt sense, is something that you experience not necessarily in explicit 
you know, symbolic way, sometimes you do experience in a symbolic way, but not always, is a felt sense. So uh, different words for different cultures or subcultures have different associated felt senses. And actually, he would claim that a lot of, uh, you know, disputes and arguments uh, between people come about when the felt sense associated with particular words or concepts is different in those different subcultures. And uh, war between sub subcultures, unfortunately, involves trying to redefine the meaning of terms because they're really key for particular, um, yeah, you know, the semantic web of, of these subcultures. And uh, that's nasty. It's, uh, it's very unfortunate. We don't want uh, war. So hopefully there's uh, ways of uh, getting around it and, you know, actually recognizing, well, ultimately, we all want the same thing, which is, you know, high states of high valence. We probably shouldn't be obsessing over meaning because, you know, that's going to lead uh, to that kind of a problem. I will also mention, you know, um, Quine, uh, other philosopher of, of uh, language in the 20th century, uh, you know, uh, has this idea that like, you know, meaning is fully contextual, that actually in the, the cement, the structure of the semantic web is what gives rise to the meaning of a particular term. So if the semantic web is to be changed, uh, you know, maybe gradually, but surely, any given term could eventually mean something different. Even he would say like two plus two equals four could actually eventually become something that is false in a different you know web of uh, semantic content because the structure of the web just doesn't make that a, a true statement, which is uh, yeah really crazy to consider. Um, but that is neglecting felt sense, you know, because felt sense in, it will come out to be in some sense objective. I mean, it, in the same way as the rest mass of the electron is an objective feature of the world, likewise, your felt sense, you know, your state of consciousness, the qualia that is triggered by a particular term, it's also an objective feature of the world. So I am far more interested actually in kind of cataloging felt senses as opposed to just being, I guess, kind of like semantically nihilistic and just saying, well, there's only networks of semantic. There's nothing truly means anything in the ground truth. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Let's ground meaning in qualia. And then things actually make sense. You know, there's actually a ground truth about what something quote unquote means subjectively. Um, so, you know, there's uh, this uh, article by Daniel Dennett uh, that, you know, is coining qualia, which is trying to, to show that qualia doesn't uh, satisfy a lot of criteria for being something real um, and that uh, we should just uh, kind of accept that like it just doesn't quite fit you know the scientific world picture and the semantic network that you know is part of consensus reality and just you know disregard it I would actually flip it around entirely you know 180 degrees or you know put it on its head which is rather than quining qualia I would say ground meaning in qualia and then all of a sudden you realize that, yes, actually meaning was a property of the universe, meaning states of consciousness, felt senses. And those felt senses is what meaning is made of. You know, that said, that in and of itself doesn't go that far. You know, we have to dissect, you know, why would a, why would a felt sense mean something and when felt sense not mean something? And, uh, you know, there's this interesting... Uh, a post by uh, Max Hodak from uh, Neuralink. Uh, pretty cool. I'll add a, a link in the description. Um, 
where he's trying to kind of like identify what uh, what meaning is. And the really cool thing is that you know he's actually trying to find uh, kind of like physical units for it. Uh, let me see which ones that he come up with. Well, and his theory uh, ends up being about you know to what extent a particular idea or interaction changes the expected you know future valence of a, of an agent and like uh, his units is something like energy times time over information which accounts to mean something like action per beat or something like that so basically uh, there's some actions that you know will drastically you know modify valence and in that sense those might be like really meaningful and others uh maybe uh, uh very meaningless uh in that sense and i think that's uh, kind of the right the right spirit They're like yes let us find the physical units for meaning it sounds absurd you know but i i honestly 100 <laughs> percent believe because of quilia formalism that yeah there's actually going to be some sort of like physical you know units for meaning and uh uh, and of course, like a theory of everything should, you know, also explain meaning in uh, in, uh, in in mathematical terms. Um, and uh, and uh, well, what I have to say about that is that well, uh, I totally agree that meaning is very connected with valence. Uh, the thing is that when it comes to states of consciousness, states of consciousness do not exist over time. I mean, in some sense, you have like snapshots of experience, discrete moments of experience, you know strung together by the brain but like you know they're kind of their own separate beings in empty individualism each of those times you know time slices is its own you know consciousness its own being in closed individualism there's you know some mysterious soul that connects them together and in open individualism we're all just consciousness so you're actually all of those moments of experience but you know you're also <laughs> every other moment of experience too but the point is that um you cannot really meaningfully integrate meaning across time because you're talking about many different moments of experience so just as we did with time the phenomenal time and you should look up my video on what is time and exotic time um, the answer is going to be to look at the individual moment of experience examine the structure of that moment of experience and identify the mathematical features that encode meaning in that moment of experience Okay, so what could that be? And well, there's several hints. I mean, first of all, intention matters a lot for meaning. Um, I would also claim in some sense that uh, patterns of meaning, sorry, like uh, meaningful uh, components of your experience have a lot of potentiality to affect change. And more so, it has a lot of potentiality to affect change of the valence kind. In other words, very meaningful things in your consciousness are kind of these uh, bundled up potential to change how good or bad you feel. Uh, so, you know, if we talk about like, well, th there exists something out there that nobody experiences and is like gray, has no flavor, uh, will never interact with anything or anybody. Most people would probably consider that meaningless. Uh, unless they get a kick out of thinking about it. But in that case, you know, it would be meaningful because of the kick they get out of thinking about it. But, uh, you know, intrinsically, they would think of it as, uh, as meaningless. And I think like that would be kind of a, a corner case as opposed to, let's say, you know, they give you, hey, this is the uh, cup of eternal love. And when you receive it, you will be accepting the universal love 
of Bodhisattva, Avalokiteshvara, and Jesus, and Krishna all together bundled up, and you're going to become a transcendent infinihedrum of omniscience or something like that. Well, hell yeah, this is going to be a very meaningful thing. Okay, so um, in between, you have things such as, like, you know, the concept of a hug. Yeah, that's a, an operator of your experience that actually does warm it up it increases its hedonic tone it has some particular valence effects and to that extent it's very meaningful college graduation well when i was uh, studying uh you know what are the most pleasant experiences that people have in their life uh, you know a certain percentage of people actually say college graduation is in their top three most uh, most pleasant experiences and yeah i mean no doubt that for given our culture a lot of people consider that a very you know pivotal moment that transforms your sense of self and your relationship with others and your career prospects, etc., etc. So yeah, it's a very central node in your semantic web with a lot of valence effects, valence implications. Um, uh, more so, uh, I would also say, okay, let's look at the structure of the experience. I would say there's this thing called the attention field lines. And I think I mentioned them in my video about 5-MeO DMT where I talked, you know, how through this annealing process, the attention field lines actually become parallel, which corresponds to a super high valence state of consciousness, but also dissolves internal boundaries. And in some sense, a 5-MeO DMT state of consciousness, a peak state of consciousness, means everything and nothing at the same time, because all the attention field lines are parallel. There's no information that can be encoded. So what does it mean? It just means this. You know, this, that, this is it, suchness. It's something of that sort. Whereas, you know, the attention field lines of a typical moment of experience is, are going to be pretty detailed. I mean, and it's going to have, you know, curl and divergence and a lot of like mathematical properties. And, and my sense is that, you know, the, the syntax and grammar of meaning in our consciousness actually involves a lot uh, manipulating these like little curls and vortices and convergent points in the attention field lines and that you know when something becomes deeply meaningful in your experience oftentimes that is uh correlated or in some sense like intrinsically uh, a part of a lot of your attention field lines concentrated into that phenomenal object um yeah which is crazy to think about that like actually introducing meaningful concepts into your consciousness changes the topology and shape of your attention field lines and yeah i mean of course if you're having a very uh you know you're getting married or something hopefully you're not getting distracted by i don't know the pink dress in the side or <laughs> or the bird over here hopefully it's kind of you know all the attention field lines are converging towards this operation to your sense of self and your sense of uh community that is going on and in that sense yeah that's richly meaningful because all of these attention field lines are converging into this you know phenomenal object is not necessarily a perceptual object is more of a conceptual object but it still has a geometry and in that sense yes i think like meaning is intimately connect connected with that um another thing to mention is <clears throat> excuse me for a second <coughs> um another thing to mention is that Precisely, you know, that ideology that like, hey, let's pursue meaning rather than, than pleasure. I think there's absolutely a way to overdo it and people overdo it all the time. Like, just as there is legit legitimately something like drug abuse, like 
stay up for <laughs> 13 days uh, on meth, you know, gambling. Okay, sure, that's drug abuse. Fine, of course, let's let's use that term. It's awful. Like, you shouldn't do that. It's going to hurt you. Uh, not good for your nervous system whatsoever. Likewise, I would claim there is meaning abuse. That, like, yeah, we base. I mean, basically, when you organize your life around a particular source of meaning, and uh, you know, the you know empirical information challenges it. <laughs> Love uh, ginger juice. Um, yeah. So, um, oftentimes you will find yourself kind of scrapping the bottom of the barrel of the meaning barrel, you know, trying to make sense of it all and just like clinging to a sense of meaning, even though, you know, patently sometimes, you know, all the evidence seems to uh, actually go counter it, you know, actually corresponding to anything real. Um, definitely don't want to give, you know, concrete examples to not offend people. I don't want to make enemies. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we could say, I know, I mean, things such as, uh, uh, you know, tribal affiliations, I would say, they tend to be very charged with that. Uh, also, like, stories that people tell, I mean, religions, absolutely, as well. There's, like, meaning abuse in religions when somebody says, like, you're going, you know, you're experiencing a kidney stone or something like that, and you're suffering, and they say, like, you should just pray to Jesus. Like, uh, no, like, that's not, you shouldn't do that. I mean, sure, do it, but, like, you should do something else, too. You know, you should actually get some... <laughs> painkillers some hard opioids because this is just actually so awful and uh meaning abuse happens all the time and it, like santa Teresa, for example um who sure like she clearly had access to a lot of fascinating states of consciousness um she would uh deny painkillers to dying patients and she would say awful things such as you know uh experiencing intense intense suffering and pain is is a sharing the cross of Jesus and he's kind of like kissing God or something like that. And like, no, that's psychopathic meaning abuse. That is the same thing as like, you know, the heroin addict to just like lying and, and stealing and, uh, and cheating in order to get its fix, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's awful. You, you shouldn't do that. In, in other words, you should recognize the limits of the capacity for meaning to improve your your valence and your happiness and your well-being and um and this is a point that i think like david chapman in his uh, online book meaningness which is also in the description he he's really makes a, a really good case about it and uh, basically he, he kind of describes these two uh uh, uh kind of a ex extrema which is uh, nihilism and eternalism now eternalism not in the sense of the philosophy of time but eternalism in in the in its association with meaning where in eternalism there is a universal principle that gives meaning to life such as like you know god or justice or uh you know whatever but there's like one and it's just like e eternal and like everything has to kind of uh, uh circle around it and that has a a whole host of, of problems uh, as I said, like meaning abuse is one example of it. And then in the other extreme, you have a nihilism where <laughs> um, you just think there's no meaning. And uh, that gives you some good things, but it also ends up being really, really bad in other ways. So instead, he compels you to think about meaning as a gradient and actually a, a phenomenal quality. And uh, I would connect it with the felt sense of meaning where 
you realize that, yeah, you know, some things are more or less meaningful and pursuing meaning in some context and in some particular situations is actually very enriching. And I would 100% endorse that message. Absolutely. Uh, but you shouldn't try to extend meaning to places where like, that's not where, where it's going to do much of a, of, of a, again, like kidney stones, like don't blame it on, you know, your karma or whatever, just <laughs> get a, get a, a, a ultrasound therapy and break those stones or, you know, uh, go through uh, in a uh, roller coaster and uh, get them through in a, you know, efficient way or, you know, whatever, have a good diet <laughs> that prevents the formation of kidney stones. That's uh, that's uh, the sort of uh, the straightforward, obvious advice. I would say just don't rely on meaning for that sort of thing, and uh, and also don't abuse meaning too much. You know, don't the equivalent. Don't stay up for seven days uh, smoking your meaning pipe. You know, expecting that to <laughs> to generate really positive outcomes in the long term. Um, okay, so I mentioned that uh, the heroin reply was. I was gonna get back to that, and uh, I think a very important one is that people associate the idea of like, okay, well, if we find a way to just be happy all the time, like, wouldn't life be meaningless? I think there's almost kind of like a, a, a I mean, obviously ignorance about, you know, the in, the intrinsic connection between high valence and hyper meaningful. Very few people say, I'm experiencing intense, you know, hyper dimensional bliss, but my life feels meaningless. That's not really a complaint you hear about. Oftentimes you hear, I'm deeply depressed and I feel life is meaningless. So, you know, valence is oftentimes, yeah. I mean, David Pierce would say, um, fix happiness and the meaning of life will fix itself uh, or will take care of itself. And I mean, an important part is like status that like it feels bad to think we are pursuing pleasure. You know, we, we would like to portray ourselves as kind of this very altruistic and and uh, self-sacrificial beings. And of course, there's some of that. And like that needs explaining, you know, that's important. You know, self-sacrificing love and, and selfless love is a property of the universe. And ideally, we will eventually figure out how to harness it for, for good. But uh, yeah, I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, a lot of people's motivations are, are not like that. And, uh, and we have to kind of like accept that and, uh, and accept people for who they are and, and, and embrace the fact that, yeah, I mean, we are not pursuing universal love all the time and hopefully we can make it work uh, without, you know, admonishing people or, or guilt trips and so on. But, but the point is that our reward architecture is like such a bully, right? Because to think, to realize do, during the philosophical steps to come to terms with the fact that you're always pursuing higher states of valence that realization feels bad and so therefore people don't embrace it but don't you see the irony here like <laughs> the realization feels bad and for that reason they don't pursue it in other words they're still obviously pursuing just higher valence in other words your reward architecture doesn't want to know itself or doesn't want you to know it in in, in one way of putting it it kind of has like these shields around it and uh, to some extent, that's why I would say, you know, consciousness research is, uh, is so underdeveloped relative to something like, you know, quantum mechanics uh, or, <laughs> or uh, you know, chemistry. It's, uh, yeah, because you actually need to overcome a bunch of kind of uh, self-inside barriers before you can, like, look at the thing directly without uh, much of a, uh, you know, problem doing that and, and just kind of being self-honest about it. And, uh, and I think like, that's uh, super important and uh, gr grossly underrated. And, uh, and people get really agitated uh, whenever uh, 
whenever you you suggest that actually all they're pursuing is uh, high valence. But again, that agitation and the response to it is itself, you know, more evidence in that direction, as it turns out. Uh, the other thing is uh, that uh, there is absolutely a misconception about, you know, pleasure and pain that uh, heroin, they would say that's a very shallow kind of well-being as opposed to, you know, yeah, like doing something wonderful for others and being respected, you know, proving a, a theorem that has been uh, unsolved for hundreds of years and and so on. And I would say, yes, you're right. And and let's look at it. OK, so what's going on? And and there's something about the dimensionality of the experience. And uh, and, you know, we have some discussions and some writings about what it means to have a high dimensional versus low dimensional experience. Fundamentally, it has to do with correlated degrees of freedom and this thing that we call, you know, virtual spaces and virtual dimensions. Just uh, for, for a quick example, DMT absolutely does increase the dimensionality of your experience, no doubt. I mean, you can actually experience things that have uh, four or five uh, spatial dimensions implicitly in terms of the network of correlations. Uh, crazy. It's, it's fascinating, incredibly crazy. And the truth is that a lot of pleasures that people describe as shallow are indeed low dimensional. And there is a distinction absolutely between something like MDMA and like, you know, an opioid, like a palliative. Um, and the, that, you know, the MDMA is going to be far more, you know, higher dimensional. Now the absolute valence may not be different, but the impact it will have on the organism and how it's going to modify its self-organization absolutely depends on the dimensionality. And uh, in that sense, higher dimensions are better for pleasure for the most part. And like given the choice, you should generally go for higher dimension, even if the absolute value is not that good uh, relative to like a lower dimensional one, because it's just going to be better for your for your uh, nervous system and also is going to connect with far many more things of your nervous system. And uh, uh, with that, I'm, I'm going to connect that with uh, basically a mystical experience because like, you know, a mystical experience in some sense, people talk about it, you know, transcending our meaning structures. But then at the same time, people talk about things such as when, you know, Jesus came in front of me and and uh, and said that it's all about love. Um, and uh, that, you know, was the peak experience uh, of your life. And, uh, and, and here there's kind of a duality because I would claim, you know, if you introspect and pay attention, especially if you have trained and you have practiced to do this, when Jesus is telling you or, you know, Buddha or Krishna or whatever, everything is made of love or is for the purpose of love, introspect on the quality of the phenomenal space and time that you're in. And I would claim that it's actually a smooth, regular space uh, for the most part. And it has a lot of like symmetry signatures. There's going to be a lot of uh, signatures such as like wallpaper symmetry groups or space groups or hyperbolic uh, symmetries. And, uh, and all of that is going to be a signature of symmetry and therefore a symmetry of high valence. So I would say that, yeah, you know, if, if you're having one of those mystical experiences, it's actually a super high dimensional, very high energy very high valence state of consciousness. And yes, those type of experiences is what ultra meaningful stuff is made of and is the thing that we use as kind of the, the nodal points into what matters in life. And that's why, yeah, I mean, like meditation and psychedelics and, you know, peak religious experiences absolutely modify how you conceive of what matters, how like <laughs> right after you know smoking 5-MeO DMT is not only 
oh my gosh, that was incredible or awful, if you have a bad luck or bad set and setting, but let's say it was incredible. Um, oh my gosh, that was incredible. You say, oh my gosh, that was incredible. And it changes everything. Why? Because it was such a high dimensional, high valence state of consciousness that it basically becomes kind of this space that allows the entirety of your nervous system to self-organize around. I mean, basically the higher the dimensionality, the, the, the more room there is for more of your metronomes and subnetworks to basically come together and coexist simultaneously. So, you know, 5MEO DMT is basically <laughs> something of such a high dimensionality that it allows everything to happen at once. Uh, you know, the experience of the clear white light or perfect silence or ultimate peace and so on. Yeah, that's a hyper ultra symmetrical, high valence, high dimensionality experience. And absolutely, it is better than plain heroin. <laughs> so, yes, there's absolutely something very real about high and low pleasures. I'm not going to deny that. But uh, what is the problem then of figuring out how to basically optimize for, you know, our states of consciousness to basically have that as kind of something we can rely on so that like, you know, rather than going to sleep, Maybe you experience eight hours of transcendental ecstasy with no tolerance and no side effects. Is there a problem with that? I don't think so. I mean, I think, I mean, if it functions, it doesn't be, make you dysfunctional or, or unethical. And most likely it's for sure not going to make you more unethical because, uh, you know, it tends to generate hyper compassion and, and also identifying with consciousness as a whole. It makes you motivated to help others and so on. It's probably just going to be a massive net positive. Um, so there you go. Yes, wireheading done right actually entails using hyper meaningful states of consciousness, except that the reason they're good is because they're high valence. <laughs> so it's kind of a you know roundabout way, but uh, ultimately I do think uh, I do think it matters a lot. Um, I'll uh, I think I'll I'll I'll, I'll wrap up with uh, basically you, you know okay like I agree like um, you know just just high valence all the time like it's just not gonna cut it like we actually need to plan this carefully and like understand how you know things can allow you to actually be functional respons responsible and so on so that you know you don't become you know you're not taken over by entities that actually suffer and they're you know it's evolutionarily advantageous that they suffer and so on no 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 we want to actually generate replicators that are aligned with the interest of consciousness you know that is the way in which consciousness will win it's not gonna win by just you in particular exiting the matrix by taking a bunch of 5-MeO DMT or, or DPT or whatever might be the the best drug that, uh, you know, the high dimensional kids will be uh, taking uh, next decade or whatever. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. The, the point is a, a collective uh, lift up, lift up and uh, uh, lifting. And, and, and to do that, you actually need sustainability and functionality. You need to be able to give to the economy and give things that not only are useful for others, but also like move others in the direction towards things that are also aligned with consciousness. This is a very tricky problem, very high dimensional, but I'm pretty certain that, you know, things that just make you, you know, be on your couch all day long for the rest of your life are just not going to cut it. So um, to get there, basically uh, kind of this framework, and this is just one piece of, the, of a bigger puzzle, but it, it kind of like stands on its own. Uh, something that I call kind of the inspiration devas, uh, something that I, I derive a lot of inspiration and meaning from personally, uh, 
um, that I think are very wholesome is basically the following three things, which is, I mean, first of all, loving kindness. Like, yeah, seriously. I mean, like, uh, you know, doing like loving kindness meditation every day. At the beginning, you will probably feel silly. You might have uh, memories of, uh, uh, you know, middle school bully uh, telling you that you're very feminine or whatever by being so loving or carefree. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's in the past to stop uh, bullying yourself. And yeah, no, I mean, honestly, uh, practicing this kind of uh, states of consciousness of uh, self-love and love towards all sentient beings Oh my gosh, like that's so valuable, so good for your mental health and so good for, for others too. Uh, how you, you're going to interact with others and care about their well-being. And at a societal level, I, I basically expect almost just benefits from uh, increasing the amount of loving-kindness meditation there is in the world. So yeah, that's very good. I, I highly, highly uh, recommend and uh, endorse that. Uh, the second one is basically being cognizant of human nature because... Love is not going to be enough. Uh, the reason has to do with game theory. And uh, basically, um, if you don't take into account actually what the animal human drives are, basically, eventually the tank will be empty, so to speak. Like, okay, maybe your prefrontal cortex and, you know, quote unquote, your higher self will say like, yeah, this is the aligned path. But then your animal self will say like, uh-uh, like I'm, I'm not going to do that for free anymore. I've got to be paid. So, yeah, we have to integrate that and, and uh, not, uh, not look away and uh, not pretend that we're angels or anything like that. Basically, we, ne we need a seamless integration of incentive alignment in the animal world, in the animal self, and access to unconditional love in kind of this more refined, higher self kind of, a, kind of world. I think that is where basically the good stuff is going to come definitely in our times maybe not in the far future but like in our times that's uh, i think the, the place to push and finally uh, something that i've uh, called uh, rainbow god which is or also rainbow consciousness which is the the desire to know the state space of consciousness understand it all and uh i mean i i don't endorse that on its own because i i do think there's like some understandings of consciousness that are probably just harmful i mean like knowing what something was super painful is like yeah you may not benefit very much from that honestly <laughs> it's just like self-torture but if you're very curious you may do it nonetheless you know like eating uh caroline carolina paper uh, pepper or something um my suggestion is like don't do it there's an opportunity cost you could be exploring interesting smells in that time rather than suffering in your couch experiencing the million scoville whatever <laughs> so personally i don't have much of a compulsion to like know the awful parts of the state space of consciousness like no 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 but i do have a heck of a curiosity about the entire state space of consciousness i'm curious about like the whatever trillion possible you know scent combinations are and uh you know the multimodal experiences i'm very curious about what a DMT states of consciousness are capable of. What is it like to combine, you know, salvia and MDMA? I've never done it. I'll probably never do it, but I'm very curious, like how that, what it's like. And, uh, and the truth is that, yeah, I mean, the state space of consciousness is so ridiculously massive that, you know, this is a, not only a, a thousand year enterprise, it's probably a million or million plus year enterprise. Um, and, uh, and I think where the, the, the nectar is, 
is in the Venn diagram, the combination of these three, which is basically organizations and, and people and cultures that recognize the paramount importance of loving kindness, uh, caring about all sentient beings, together with a recognition of the animal self and how to align incentives and also, you know, literally just what makes you healthy as a human. Uh, you know, think of your, like, <laughs> for the most part, if you were like a monkey and you were, you know, eating junk food and taking drugs and staring at a screen, you know, 14 hours a day and so on, somebody would call, you know, animal protection services. And we don't tend to realize that we are monkeys too. Uh, and we do that to ourselves. So yeah, okay, so like also take into account, you know, our evolutionary constraints and so on. And yeah, like maintain a, an open line of communication with, you know, rainbow consciousness or at least a, a tamed, uh, you know, uh, ethical version of rainbow consciousness. And, and, uh, and that's, I think, where the three inspiration devas or, or, or divine beings or energies um, are really wholesome and beautiful and very good for, for all of us. And uh, I would love it if uh, more people cultivate that. That thing is just very good. So with that, uh, thank you so much. And uh, this was fun. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Have a wonderful evening or day or <laughs> whatever time or climate or you know state of consciousness you find yourself in. May it be wonderful.